Will you pray with me? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, O Lord. Come and take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. Take our hearts and make them one with yours. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in our gospel lesson this morning, we hear the familiar story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, where he will be mocked and killed, seeks out Zacchaeus and eventually pronounces those wonderful words that salvation has come to his house. Zacchaeus finds salvation. That's what this whole passage is about, salvation. But there's a lot that is going on in this brief account. And so today I'd like to invite you to think with me about it through the three main characters in the story. We, of course, know Jesus and Zacchaeus, but also the crowd, those standing by. So Jesus is traveling from Galilee in the north toward Jerusalem, and he passes through Jericho. Jericho is about 17 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. It's a very important town. Uh, It's a splendid oasis after an 80 or so mile journey down from Galilee. And Jesus has come into the town and he has just given sight to a blind beggar in the account right before this. People are praising God. And then Luke tells us that Zacchaeus appears on the scene. Who is Zacchaeus? All we are told initially is that he is a chief tax collector, and he was rich. But we know what that means, right? It's shorthand for a corrupt man, a very bad Jew. Tax collectors, or what's more likely in Zacchaeus' case, customs officials, colluded with the Roman state to exact taxes from Jewish people. In theory, you know, they were supposed to be collecting money that they owed Rome. But they like to take advantage of the system and bill folks a little bit more. So I think at the outset here, we need to reorient our thinking a little bit. I think we naturally find ourselves cheering for Zacchaeus. He's the underdog. He's the social outcast. And we Americans love the underdog. Why do you think so many people who would ordinarily have little interest in baseball are all of a sudden so attracted to the World Series this year? It's a contest between the two ultimate underdogs, the lovable losers from Chicago who haven't won in 108 years. To give you a little context, back before women could vote, before the Titanic was constructed. And then the other team is from the forlorn city of Cleveland, which hasn't won since shortly after World War II, and of course, way before we put a man on the moon. So a long time ago, there are two great underdogs and everyone, but that's not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax man, and I don't think there's a culture out there anywhere throughout time that's like, the tax man, yes, I love the tax man. But on top of that, he's a turncoat, right? He's a traitor. He's working for the Romans. If you have any doubt as to how you and I, if we were living, then would have perceived the tax collector, look no further than the contrast that Luke paints between the Pharisee and the tax collector in last week's text. As Father Nelson laid out so clearly last Sunday, you would have loved to have been around Pharisees. They were the best neighbors, always upholding the law, never trying to extend their property too far, not dumping their yard clippings on your curb, 
You would love to vote for a Pharisee as a politician. They wouldn't involve themselves with scandal, no passing shady legislation in backroom deals, no buying people off. They live cleanly. And man, what you wouldn't give to have loads and loads of Pharisees in your congregation if you were a pastor. Because they tithe regularly. They never cause a scene. They always show up to meetings. They live the straight life, right? And who, who is it that Jesus chooses as the contrast to the Pharisee? It's the tax collector. So our man Zacchaeus in today's account fits this character profile that is the direct opposite of the good, upstanding Pharisee. And if we think that Zacchaeus might be a good tax collector, the following statement throws that possibility out. He was rich. Well, how do you become rich? You exact a lot from those that you are called to tax. Or you've worked your way up from lower echelons of the tax collecting business to be a chief tax collector, as he was. Jericho in this time was a major customs center. It was located at a key crossroads, a key trade crossroads, sort of a frontier post, if you will, between two Roman provinces. The export of balsam, which is a sweet-scented perfume, was centered in Jericho. And Zacchaeus wasn't just any customs official. He was a chief or ruling tax collector. He's in charge of other tax collectors. So we might say it this way. Zacchaeus was of high status in the Greco-Roman world, but of very low social status in the eyes of good religious Jews. We've just heard in the previous chapter of Luke's Gospel, in the account of the rich ruler, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So based on that episode, Zacchaeus is set up as a total long shot for admission into God's kingdom. But Zacchaeus is curious. He wants to see Jesus, and so much so that he scales a sycamore tree to make sure he can lay eyes on this Jesus. And then fast-forwarding a bit, after Jesus has called him out, Zacchaeus joyfully receives him. And surprise of surprises, Zacchaeus gives and restores. His character profile is supposed to get and extort, and he flips all those stereotypes on their head. He operates with a posture of restitution, of seeking wholeness. He says, I'm not only going to give liberally to others, but I'm going to practice a restitution that's really unheard of. According to Jewish law, Zacchaeus owes to those from whom he has previously taken the original amount plus a fifth. What does Zacchaeus do instead? He restores fourfold. Can you imagine that? What does fourfold restitution mean? Well, perhaps it implies some sort of identification with certain offenses. That Zacchaeus recognizes his actions to have caused some sort of death in those he defrauded. Luke's gospel over and over again stresses the use of possessions as a major indicator of your spiritual condition. Zacchaeus has been changed, transformed by an encounter with Christ, and he uses his resources differently now. We know that according to Jesus' teachings in Luke, wealth is often a barrier to being rich toward God and others. But Zacchaeus is shown to be a very generous person in his turning to the Lord, 
and he is declared by Jesus to be a son of Abraham. What is a son of Abraham? According to John the Baptist, just a few chapters earlier in Luke, it is someone who bears fruit worthy of repentance. Do you remember the scene? John is on the banks of the Jordan, and droves of people are coming to him. Tax collectors especially are drawn. Could Zacchaeus be one of them who came to be baptized by John earlier in Luke's gospel? What had John said to them? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't say, we have Abraham as our father. For God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then John goes on to define what a true child of Abraham is. And it is, of course, not someone of blood descent, but one who bears good fruit. The tax collectors there at the scene with John and the Jordan says, Well, teacher, what should we do? And John replies, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Clement of Alexandria, for those of you who are interested in these sorts of things, about 150 years later, claimed that Zacchaeus was surnamed Matthias and took the place of Judas Iscariot after Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1. If that's true, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that Matthias was with Jesus since John was baptizing people at the Jordan. It's not too far out of the realm of possibility, then, that Zacchaeus was one of the tax collectors who came to John, and now he is bearing fruit. He's collecting no more than he is authorized to do, and he's making abundant restitution to those he has previously wronged. So whether John was there at the Jordan with John, whether Zacchaeus was there at the Jordan with John, or has gotten wind of John's call to repentance from his fellow tax collector colleagues, or is unaware altogether, Zacchaeus is bearing fruit. His words are in the present tense. Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Several biblical scholars see this now less as a story of conversion and more of Zacchaeus' vindication and restoration to the community of God's people. Zacchaeus is already doing these things. He's saying, my customary practice is to give half of what I have to the poor. Zacchaeus is describing to Jesus his current behaviors regarding money. So the story becomes then more about what Jesus is doing in relation to the surrounding community, their social norms. Now, what has been the disposition of those taking in the scene, the bystanders, if you will, the crowd? We don't know too much. The crowd receives only short mention in one one sentence. It's verse 7. But that gives us enough. And so I want to focus on the crowd for a moment. Because I think that's who you and I, perhaps, are most like. Going back to the previous episode where Jesus has healed a blind man, the people have been keenly interested in Jesus' ministry. Many of them have probably been following Jesus for some time now. But the first thing that we notice is that they form somewhat of an obstacle to Zacchaeus getting to Jesus. What's the main thing that's keeping Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus? It's the crowd, right? Then when they hear Jesus say that he's going to hang out with Zacchaeus, they all start grumbling. Eugene Peterson phrased it this way. What? Jesus getting cozy with a crook? 
this sleazy, no-good extortionist, a sellout to the Romans against God's people, tax collectors, again, they're, they're like the Nazi sympathizers, right? They are uh, people pitted against uh, the Jewish uh, people, oftentimes. That's how they're per- perceived. As you know, to share a meal with someone is to regard them as your intimate. So to go home with someone means to participate with someone in life. Table fellowship is the heart of communal and family life. You don't just eat with anyone. This is really what gets Jesus killed, his sharing fellowship with sinners. It is here, incidentally, that we learn of another of Zacchaeus' identities. He is a sinner, according to popular opinion. Who is it that we have written off as hopelessly lost based on their background, their education, their profession, their lack of profession? A co-worker with troubled marriage relationships, a family member who has hitched their hopes to a particular political candidate, a mom who doesn't look much like a good mother to her children, a lawyer, a business person, a scholar, and on and on who has enslaved themselves to their work. May I ask, how might we, this week, become more of a people that don't begin to roll our eyes at the Zacchaeuses of the world, but associate and share table with them, as Jesus did? Who is God making into a son or daughter of Abraham that you and I have written off, overlooked, thumbed our noses at? Let's take a step back now. What is Jesus doing in this passage? What is he up to? The final line of the story tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And who is lost? All are lost. The older son is so often just as in need of God's grace, his touch, his perspective, his love, as the younger profligate son. Which brings us to an important question. Who is seeking whom in this story? Who is pursuing whom? We discover at the outset that Zacchaeus is on a quest to see who Jesus is, only to learn in the end that Jesus has been on a quest for Zacchaeus to bring him salvation. It's the epitome of the messianic mission, right? What Jesus said uh, back in Luke 4 when he took the scroll from Isaiah, that those words are fulfilled today to proclaim good news to the marginalized and oppressed. Thievery and extortion were bad, yes, but they were not Zacchaeus's first-order problem. His immediate problem was not his sinful activity, but his lack of relationship. Jesus says, in spite of your record, in spite of your flaws, in spite of your sin, I want to be with you. Tomorrow marks the 499th anniversary of when Martin Luther went public with his 95 theses. It's what we around the Western world celebrate as Reformation Day. So I'm reminded, as I read this story of Zacchaeus, of one particular man's experience from this era. His name was Thomas Bilney. You may know of him. He lived in Cambridge. He's part of our Reformation history as Anglicans. And what happens is in the early 1500s, Bilney, a priest then in his early 20s, gets his hands on a copy of Erasmus's recently published New Testament Bilney has been troubled deep inside himself, never feeling reconciled to God, never experiencing his acceptance, his embrace, his peace. And he reads 1 Timothy 
in this fresh edition of the New Testament. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It was like a lightning bolt to him. He later wrote that at that moment, Christ met him, and he says, I learned that all my labors, my fasting and watching, all the redemption of masses and pardons, being done without truth in Christ, who alone saves his people from their sins. These, I say, I learned to be nothing else, but even as St. Augustine says, a hasty and swift running out of the right way. It was a life-altering event, not unlike Martin Luther's famous tower experience. It's a direct encounter with the Lord, confronted with the reality that there is nothing we can bring to the table, that it is our Lord alone who seeks us out in our helpless state. As some of you may know, Bilney went on to be part of a little community that gathered around Cambridge in the 1520s to discuss some of the new ideas coming from Luther and others. It was called Little Germany there in Cambridge, England, and it became the seedbed of the theological reformation in England. Christ pours out his grace. He makes Zacchaeus worthy as he summons him to host the very Son of God. Jesus has just recently said that it is hard for a rich man to be saved. The salvation of Zacchaeus, though, shows it is not impossible. Jesus has responded to the people who asked in the previous scene, the things which are impossible with humans are possible with God. And Zacchaeus proves that to be true. So pay attention to the signs. Zacchaeus responds to Christ's grace. Zacchaeus is very interested in Jesus. He's happy to welcome him. Zacchaeus scrambles out of the tree, hardly believing his good luck, delighted to take Jesus home with him. The people, meanwhile, grumble. And Jesus says, Jesus says elsewhere in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. Those words were written to a church, not to non-believers, although it certainly applies to them as well, but to you and to me. You see, Jesus has come to seek out Zacchaeus, but he is also rescuing all those who are witnessing this and have preconceived notions about how far God's grace runs. Friends, the gospel is not about upward mobility. It's not about respectable lives. The gospel is about the Son of God who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. And he got on our level, the level of a shady tax collector, a man entirely abandoned to greed ordinarily, a complete moral reprobate. Jesus' table fellowship is a scandalous practice. Who do you choose to keep company with? Who do you and I see as beyond the reach of God's grace? I assure you that they are not. They may be a son, a daughter of Abraham. Brothers and sisters, God can find you no matter where you are, whether you've known him from an early age or have never known him. His grace found a young Cambridge man, Thomas Bilney, when he least expected it. It found Zacchaeus, for Jesus came to track down, to rescue, to restore to seek out and to save the lost, both the Zacchaeuses of this world and those of us who might be disturbed to see this episode with that awful man unfold. Amen.